Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug and play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point of sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. The Athletic. You know, that Spurs game plan, that's what they're trying to achieve. They're trying to achieve those good chances breaking into space. If you just get a free kick in your own half, the opposition have 11 men behind the ball. And you think, oh, he's not going to get the the other yellow card, so he's fine to just have that one as a free hit. Hi there, welcome. This is the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. We are a weekly show brought to you by The Athletic and dedicated to topics including, but certainly not limited to, football tactics, data analysis of the beautiful game and footballing trends as well. Uh, Delighted to be back this week and a big thanks to those of you who sent kind words about last week's episode. Glad you enjoyed it. It's always good to hear from you. Helps us to learn more really about what you guys like to listen to. Uh, I'm Ali Maxwell. Michael Cox is here too. Hello, Michael. Hi, Ali. How are you? I'm good. Looking forward to this podcast. Been a a good couple of uh, first weekends of the Premier League, so looking forward to getting stuck into it. Quite right. Mark Carey rejoins us. Good to have you back, Mark. All well? Yeah, all well, thanks. Yeah, I was going to say I very much enjoyed the the podcast last week with you guys and and John Muller. It was was fun to be a listener again. It was like the, the good old days. Now that I'm on the podcast, I don't normally listen back to it quite as much, so it was just like... Being a good old listener. It's two weeks in a row where one of you has missed the pod and then come on and said how much better you thought yeah. the pod was. Without, I'd yeah. like a, if anything, I'd like a bit more ego. I'd like a bit more arrogance. <laughs> but you can you. give it a go if you want, Ali. See if it works for you. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. Fair. I cannot tell you how much I would hate listening back to this podcast without me presenting. <laughs> I, would, <laughs> I would feel so jealous. Anyway, we are two weeks into the Premier League season uh, and this episode will be filled with observations on early trends, uh, new dynamics and a few quirks as well. I'm going to ask the guys about the impact of referees letting the game go with their much-discussed higher threshold. Uh, I also want to check in with early signs from the increased number of substitutions allowed in the Premier League, moving in line with other top European leagues from three subs to five subs this season. But let's start with something tactical. Three at the back. Michael, last season, whenever we spoke about three at the back systems, we we kind of bemoaned the fact that it felt like you always have to say Team X playing a three at the back or a five, if you mm. prefer. But it feels like three has kind of won out here, don't you think? 
Yeah, I think so. And I think, to be honest, it's probably part of that is because I think there's more teams these days that play with an attacking intent. There were times where it did feel like a back five. I think there's still probably a couple. I think the way Bournemouth have played it, I think naturally because they played against Manchester City, that did feel like a back five to me. But yeah, in general, I think you look at the identity of the players out wide and they're generally players who can push forward and overlap. And it's not just putting an extra centre-back in, which in days gone by, I mean, probably a long time in the past, 20, 25 years ago, it did feel like teams just added an extra centre-back without really adjusting how they played overall. But yeah, uh, some people will kind of see a third centre-back as a negative move, um, but I don't think that's always the case. No, well, we're going to have a look at its usage in the Premier League so far. 3ATB, as it's often used in, in shorthand. Tactical systems using three centre-backs and within that, many different ways to execute it. A steady increase, Mark, really over the last two or three seasons and it feels like even more so this season we've we've leapt up at another level in terms of three at the back systems in the Premier League with the acceptance of this being a very small sample size. Took the words out of my mouth I was going to start by saying small sample size I caveat everything that I say so true to form but uh yeah, I did look into the numbers and of, of the 40 starting lineups that we've had across the, the two game weeks, 18 have started with a, I was going to say a back three slash five, but let's call it a back <laughs> three for the consistency. Um, so if you were to be you know, simplistic about that, that's 45% of the sides in the opening two weeks, which feels quite high. Um, and as Michael mentioned, you know, we've got two of the, the three teams of the, who come up from the championship who have been playing with that sort of system. Obviously, Bournemouth moved to a, a back three, back five from playing predominantly the, the back four last season, um, which we've discussed on, on this podcast, actually. But yeah, I think it is an interesting one how, you know, you can think of it as a back five. Crystal Palace be, being another example from Monday, they were definitely more of a back five. But yeah, it seems that almost half of the, the teams um, so far seem to be playing with that system, which is really interesting. And I think you can actually go further because there's a couple of teams who have played a back four on paper and a back four without the ball, but of course shift into back three. I mean, Arsenal have very noticeably done that with Zinchenko being almost like an extra central midfielder in possession. And I'd say Manchester City at the weekend as well were doing something similar. Um, so yeah, it's uh, I wouldn't classify those strictly speaking as a back three. But clearly there is some kind of hybrid systems in play as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I mean, looking at last season, comparing that that number that I mentioned to last season, I took it to just the first two game mm-hmm. weeks just to see if there was any early signs rather than comparing it across the whole season. So it was nine of the 40 starting lineups who started with the back 3-5 um, at this stage last season. That's low as 23%, so significantly low. So we've got essentially double the number of sides starting with that sort of system in the early parts of this season. And across the whole of the season last year, it was 29%, so nearly a third of, of sides across the whole season having that sort of back 3-5 system. So to start with as high as 45%, again, ludicrously small sample size, but it does seem to be rather high and certainly worthy of, uh, of comment in, the, in our little notebook. One of the fixtures in which we've seen two teams playing on paper 3 ATB systems it was on the weekend Chelsea against Spurs Michael you wrote a really good tactical takeaways piece from this one and in in that piece particularly certain managers and dare I say at the very top managers are just doing so they're just so active tactically within that framework both in and out of possession that one shouldn't pigeonhole them this game really interesting tactically one player you highlighted in particular was the role of, of Mason Mount who seems so often used by Thomas Tuchel as basically the key 
tactical piece or differential uh, in this Chelsea side. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. Uh, I think Mount's a very interesting player because obviously there's a generation of very talented young attacking midfielders, English attacking midfielders. You can put him in a group, I guess, with Foden and Grealish and Saka. And I must say of all of those, in terms of what he contributes on the ball, I'm not sure Mount really stands out. But I think the way that he excels is he's very, very intelligent. He's really good at finding space. The first time I saw him play was Frank Lampard's first game as Chelsea manager when they lost 4-0 away at Old Trafford. But I actually thought Mount was the best player because he's so good at finding space. And in this game, I think he was the key player. And it was almost, I mean, for all the kind of tactical complexities in a a game between Conte and Tuchel, it felt really to me just like a clash of formations. Um, It was basically that... Um, Spurs were playing 3-4-3 and Chelsea were playing more of a 3-5-2 certainly in terms of how the midfield shaped up and it just meant that when you know the the two Spurs central midfielders pressed their opposite numbers um, Mount was just free between the lines and and the player who was coming up to to close them down was uh, Romero the Spurs centre-back and obviously that was him coming 20-30 yards out of his defence so I, I thought that was the key feature of the game I think Chelsea kind of uh, let themselves down because they lack good passing quality. You know, I said in the article, I think it was quite indicative of of Chelsea under Tuchel since he took charge. Tactically, they're really, really good. Very rare you see them kind of tactically outplayed or outplayed in general. But they just don't convert their superiority in certain positions into chances and goals. And I think whether that's because of individuals or whether it's something slightly flawed in the way Tuchel wants to play, but we've seen Chelsea have a lot of very good individuals who just haven't clicked. They just It's very rare to find a Chelsea attacker over the last couple of years who's enjoyed a sustained run of form. Obviously, Werner's been tried and has left. Lukaku's been tried and has left. Ziyech, Pulisic, none of these players really are playing as well as they have done at their previous clubs. Um, and the more that happens, the more you think there's some kind of pattern there. I was going to ask if there was, in your eyes, an obvious solution to Chelsea's issues of not being deadly enough inside the box is it to do with the number nine it's so often that's what gets focused on does that obscure uh, other issues you talked about passing quality there the other player who I think has done well broadly speaking is is Kai Havertz since he joined the club and I think he's actually a kind of similar player to Mount in that he's really really good at finding space his end product sometimes is a bit lacking and I mean that you know, he missed an absolutely golden chance in this game, which sums it up, made the right run, understood the situation, just didn't put the ball in the goal. Um, we know that Chelsea is still in the market for another attacker. The identity and the style of that attacker seems quite fluid. I mean, Anthony Gordon... I, I, One man's fluid is another man's incredibly random. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Gordon looks a really talented player. But I'm not sure he's necessary. He's not really the kind of player Chelsea lack. I mean, they've already signed Sterling, who is a kind of mobile winger who can play through the middle, running the channels, going in behind. So um, clearly they want that sort of player rather than a, a kind of fixed number nine. But um, yeah, I, I find the situation with Chelsea's attackers a little bit strange. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was the point exactly I was going to make on that. And I was speaking to, to Liam Toomey, our Chelsea writer, and he essentially said as much, said that you don't get the, the sense that Tuchel is looking for a fixed number nine, you know, in the mould of Lukaku per se. I mean, it just didn't work out, did it, last season for reasons off the pitch as much as on it. But you want, you know, maybe they're looking for a clinical finisher, but not necessarily a fixed number nine. And that's why, again, in the mould of random shouts, you know, Aubameyang being a, a name that's been touted, he actually would fit the mould of someone who actually played you know, a lot of his best football, not necessarily as the 
the number nine, but playing obviously coming in for the left-hand side. So a clinical finisher, not necessarily a number nine, is maybe who they're looking for. In the second half, after Chelsea had been comfortably the better side and, uh, in the first, Conte did make a tactical tweak, Michael, from three five two to four two four. Really, is this typical of of Conte, and, and how did it impact the game? Kind of. Well, it's it's very typical of Conte going back ten years because before he joined Juventus, and in fact, in, in his first half season at Juventus, he did favour this system, which was, I think, most people would say four two four. But initially, they're, they're quite bold and say four two four if you're using proper wingers rather than kind of workmen like midfielders, and it did work. Although I thought, I mean, Tottenham took more control of the game and of course they they created a couple of very good chances um I think the main chance from Kane which he missed was actually a bit of an anomaly just because Loftus-Cheek from wing back had, had pushed forward a lot but it did help I mean it was an extra attacking player and I think Richarlison is very good with his work off the ball as well Chelsea got a goal from a, a long-range strike but I think I think Tuchel actually made quite a good change in terms of he brought on Azpilicueta for Jorginho uh, which meant that Loftus-Cheek went into the middle, um, as Piliqueta went right side of centre-back, and then suddenly Reese James was on the right, and Loftus-Cheek played all right. I think he carried the ball well in field, well in the first half, but it was almost like you had the classic situation now of a wing-back against a back four, and twice James just got space on the outside, first to cross for that Havertz chance, and then obviously to, to score and put Chelsea 2-1 ahead. And I thought that would kind of be a, a fitting way for the game to end. I just think Tuchel got the better of the tactical battle, both from the start and with his changes. Obviously, then Chelsea couldn't def- defend a late set piece. But overall, I, I came out of the game thinking Chelsea played pretty well. And um, yeah, just the better side on the day. Well, if the positive for Spurs was their mentality and, and keeping pressure on until the end, if not winning the tactical battle, do you think Spurs and Conte may need to become less predictable tactically. I think the way that they play from the start in each game feels relatively predictable. And that's not necessarily a huge issue if plan A is good enough. But does his changes in game need to be a little less predictable as well to to stop the likes of Tuchel outsmarting him, as you suggested that he did? I mean, I do think of Conte as a real tactician, someone who can use different systems, but he has been relatively wedded to this way of playing. I mean, I think I think you can make an argument either way. I mean, Liverpool have been pretty consistent the last few years in terms of how they've set up. And they, I know they've only won one title, which maybe they could have won more, but I don't think that's been a particular issue for them. And I do think that Conte has the alternatives up his sleeve when required. He can go to 3-5-2. He can go to four at the back. So I think there are enough tactical options. I think the kind of to come back to your your first question, Ali, I think, the difficult thing with playing Chelsea is Mount can play in a front three or he can play as part of the midfield. And at times he's kind of doing both. So they've got that real fluidity uh, between systems. I'm not sure Spurs can do that. I mean, Kudusevsky can play deeper, but probably not really as a central midfielder. So I guess when you see the 11 on paper, you do pretty much know what system it's going to be. Whereas I think Chelsea with some of their versatile players, I mean, when their team sheet came out, I wasn't sure if that was maybe a back four. It could have been Reese James at right back with Loftus-Cheek as a midfielder. So maybe just the, the versatility of Chelsea's players gives them a bit of an edge, I suppose. Something you said about Mount is really interesting to me and I wonder if it could be worth a more extended part of an episode or an episode of its own. And that was comparing him to the other players, let's say, who, who occupy similar areas of the pitch. Uh, I know that we're trying to be a bit more fluid with our roles here, our role definition, but the likes of Foden and Grealish and 
you know, you mentioned Mount's possibly his greatest value being a tactical one and the fluidity that he offers managers and, dare I say it, out of possession and his, his work rate, his ability to press and uh, and how well he's done that over the last few seasons. Uh, and clearly, or perhaps not clearly, but, but probably less of an on-ball value compared to some of those players. And it'd be interesting to discuss that in a bit more detail and, and, and kind of weigh up what one is after when building a team. On-ball value versus out-of-possession value versus a, a tactical value that's obviously very hard to measure. Uh, Mark, it, it'd be an interesting one, that. Yeah, and this is why it's the, it's the notorious sort of issue or question in the data from looking at it, because often we, we deal with event data and by definition, you have to have an event for that to be logged in, in the player's value and their contribution. You can go into greater depth, and we've spoken about things like possession value and looking at it beyond just looking at you know shots and goals and things like that. But all of those off-ball things are so difficult to quantify in the data, in the numbers. And that's why you still can't replace things like video and, and real-life scouting and real-life tactical analysis, because the value, as we know, that the likes of Mason Mount offers are things that do go far beyond the data. So tricky one to, to quantify, but definitely from a tactical perspective, something to dig into, yeah. Back to three at the back systems in general. Michael, a few questions about, about this. They, they may be a bit general, but I'm going to throw them your way anyway and see what you think. There's been a lot of talk about the importance of pressing, increased importance of pressing over the last five years rather than the last one or two. Uh, is it harder to press effectively when you are playing with three centre-backs in a three-centre-back system, given that that generally means, or it, it has to mean, at least one fewer attacker or midfielder who would ordinarily be pressing in the at the top of the pitch? I think it depends really on the shape you're playing against. I don't think so in general. I think you can you can find examples of teams where they play with three centre-backs and pretty much everyone else is, is pressing high up the pitch. Or And I know it didn't really work particularly well, but even in this game Spurs did show that you can push a centre-back forward and Romero into the midfield to close down if needed if you got the right kind of centre-back and it didn't really cost them as, as much as it might have done so yeah I, to a certain extent but I think it depends on the shapes really I guess you need very good awareness defensively from the other players let's say the right wing-back or the other centre-backs when Romero uh, is pushing high into midfield to make sure that any gaps get filled on the other side of things is it harder to press effectively against a team playing with three centre-backs because they have, in theory anyway, more numbers to build from deep? I'd say, again, it, it depends on the shapes. But I think probably there's more of an argument for this. I think you have got an extra centre-back there. You have got an extra player in build-up. Um, and yeah, it generally does force opponents to commit another player higher up the pitch. So I think there's probably more of an argument for this. But... I mean, yeah, it depends on the shape, doesn't it? I mean, if you play, th if there's a three-four-three against a three-four-three, which I think is kind of what Tottenham are expecting, then everyone knows who they've got to press. Mm. It's, it's you're basically matching up the systems there. Um, so yeah, I think it depends. It's like asking me what my favourite pasta is. It just depends on the shapes. You just can't. <laughs> there's no definitive answer. It all depends on the shapes and the source. Mark, three at the back means wing backs. So far, at least, I'm looking forward to a team playing three at the back and just ignoring the wide areas altogether. But it hasn't really happened yet. Uh, they come in all different shapes and sizes, modern wingbacks. Uh, I'd like to know which unusual players have been playing wingback in the Premier League in the first two weeks of the season. So not your ordinary standard 
wing-back type. Yeah, I mean, the, the one that stand out to me the most from, from the first round of fixtures is the, the use of inverted wing-backs from, from Brighton against Manchester United. I thought it was so, so well done, such a you know an ingenious move from Graham Potter. And they have done it before. They had Leandro Trossard as a right-footed left wing-back and Solly March as a left-footed right wing-back which I'm taking my time in saying that because it's a bit of a mouthful. But it caused, as I say, it caused Manchester United problems throughout the game. And I think that's how the the goal came about, the first goal. And it was allowing them to sort of come inside and play more kind of slide rule passes, more of through balls rather than what we would consider to be typical wing-back play, which is obviously getting it wide, high and wide and getting crosses in. So it allowed them to obviously invert the pitch and come inside more, which played into... Um, you know, Brighton hands perfectly and Manchester United just didn't have an answer for it. So that was a really good, intelligent use of, of wing-back play that was slightly different to normal. Mm, we saw Loftus-Cheek at right wing-back for, for Chelsea at parts on the weekend against Spurs. Gineppo of Saints sprang to mind when I was just having a quick look this morning, playing left wing-back for the first two games uh, for Southampton. Not necessarily the obvious role for him uh, from what I know about Gineppo anyway. So interesting stuff from Hassan Huttel. We move on though. This is the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. Next, we're talking about five subs and increased thresholds for physical contact. And it's as sexy as it sounds. Stay with us. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Hello, I'm Ian Irving, host of the Athletics Manchester United podcast, Talk of the Devils. Join me, Andy Mitten, Laurie Whitwell and Carl Anker every week, but particularly this week, as we gear up to the huge Liverpool game at Old Trafford on Monday night. We'll preview that match without paying any reference to our meeting with our rivals from last season, of course, and we'll also assess the latest twists and turns in Manchester United's roller coaster of a summer transfer window. You won't get better insight on United 
anywhere else. And as you'll find, you won't get better cocktails chat either. Just search for Talk of the Devils wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, let's get into five substitutions. Lots of talk about this ahead of the new season. The Premier League finally following suit with the rest of Europe. Michael, from the very foundation of five subs during COVID times, I think it's fair to say you were never a fan of of this idea and its adoption from the start. How do you feel about it now? Yeah, I'm still not a massive fan. I don't particularly see that there's many real benefits for football here. I'd, I'd say there's there's four areas I would say is a bit of a concern. And I'm going to leave aside for now the argument about whether it suits bigger teams or not, because I think there's been a lot of discussion about that. But one, uh, I think it increases the tempo of games, which I don't think in itself is necessarily a good thing. I think the games are played at a good tempo at the moment. And I think there is a danger that there'll be just so much focus and so much uh, emphasis on pressing and aggression and getting really tight that actually some of the more cultured players who thrive with a bit of time on the ball kind of their influence is slightly lessened second I think there's an issue with squad size in general I think big clubs hoard too many players um, and I think you know back in the relatively old days when you could only name 16 players in your squad and 14 players could play a part it was a lot harder to keep a lot of highly paid professionals kind of happy and on board. I think those players would be more inclined to go to lesser teams. I think now you've got a match day squad of 20, 16 who can play a part. I think it's easier for, for clubs to hoard players who maybe could drop down the league and, and be just contributing a bit more to football in general. Um, third issue is tactical fouling, which I think is a, a really big issue in the game. We actually saw an example of this in the Tottenham or Chelsea Tottenham game we were just talking about. Where was it? Reese James basically rugby tackled. Who was it? Son? No, yeah, it was Son. Yeah, he was scampering clear. That's well, it. not scampering clear. He was he was about to lead a very dangerous looking counter attack. Yeah, and and that is Tottenham's game plan. Tottenham's game plan is kind of sucking the opponents in and playing past them quickly on the break if you want to call it a break. I know Conte doesn't really like it if you call it a break, but those situations, and I think teams playing against that are now more able to tactically foul and say, well, we can just sub him because we've got five subs, so that's not mm. that's not a huge issue. And finally, just I think there's a balance in football between how much the managers are in control of stuff and how much it's a bit of a kind of you know runaway train they're not in control of. And I think sometimes there's an argument that actually managers can change too much now and have too much influence on the game. So, and I think there's a balance to be found. So, uh, yeah, overall, I'm not a fan. I don't think it's disastrous for the game, but I can't really see the arguments for it. I think that's my main issue. I know player burnout and injuries and those kind of things. But as I've said previously, I'm slightly unconvinced by the injury argument when the impact of more subs is going to mean a higher tempo and it's going to mean players who have to play 90 minutes are more likely to be up against players who are completely fresh I'm just not really sure that's gonna have the desired impact but we shall see the tempo and the intensity thing interests me as well because it's something which I thought is yeah two sides of the coin that you can higher rotation within the game could either mean a, a greater spectacle because you do still have that that higher intensity potentially less fatigue so it's going to be a bit more played at breakneck speed or would it become a worse spectacle because in theory you could have up to 10 new players come on the pitch and the mm. rhythm of the game is completely disrupted and you can almost I think there's been occasions before where you know teams have made maybe in the Champions League have made 
a lot of substitutions and beyond maybe 70 minutes you can almost write off the final 20 minutes of the game because it hasn't been kind of true to the the tactical patterns of the the other 70 minutes so i'm sure it'll change game to game but it, it could be you know i think two sides of the coin where it's even better as a spectacle because of the tempo or even worse because the rhythm of the game is just absolutely disrupted so much to unpack with this and i don't i don't really know where to start and i, I already feel like trying to find answers or at least trying to present answers is a bit of a fool's errand here i mean for a start mark you know you wrote a piece ahead of the new season about the five subs rules you dug into to data from the european leagues that have used this um and you tried to work out things like does it favor the bigger sides and uh, how does it impact injuries and burnout etc it struck me that it's so difficult to do your job on this front it's so difficult specifically with this conversation, to measure impact mm. and to find correlation, given that there's so many factors that go into the result of a football match. There's so many factors that go into a goal being scored in a football match. And therefore, to measure the impact of an individual substitute or, or the extra two, as it may be, outside of did they score the winning goal? <laughs> it's just impossible, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you've hit it spot on there in terms of the impact. And that's why I looked at the correlations and relationships between these things and notoriously correlation is not causation so you can't actually then look at the yeah the actual causation uh, itself so that's why I mainly looked at it like that but you're right there's so many things to unpick and I know that yeah we won't labour the point about the the top sides but I think one of the arguments I made was that more substitutions doesn't necessarily mean doesn't have a relationship with more league points and that just makes complete sense anyway because it's not necessarily about the the quality of players sorry the quantity of players that um a change within the game it's it's all about the quality of players so if you're a better side anyway you're more likely to get more points irrespective of whether you make a lot of substitutions or not so naturally you'd think that would follow that this is not going to have too much relationship but I mean, on the note of burnout as well, in the piece I wrote that Liverpool and Chelsea both played 63 games in all competitions last season. And Aston Villa, as a random example in the Premier League, played 41 games in all competitions. So 22 more games from Liverpool and Chelsea. So that does lend itself to the, the burnout idea. And I know that you've got to think about rotation between games as much as within games. But if there's, you know, talking about players in the red zone and injuries come into play you do think that maybe there is a case for it when you look at that stark contrast of two teams in the same league, but 22 games separate them in terms of all competition games played. It definitely seems to make sense to me, someone with absolutely no knowledge of sports science, that, that rotation between games would have a bigger impact than a manager being able to take two extra players off. Partly because, and this is purely anecdotal, so far, Michael, what I think I've seen from the five subs rules is that the fourth and fifth sub, the extra ones, are mostly being taken off in the last 10 minutes of the game, if not the last five minutes of the game. And it's it's hard for me to understand how that would make a ginormous impact on the physical fatigue and or the recovery ability of a player that's played 86 minutes rather than 93 minutes. I think you're right. I, I don't have anything more to add. I agree. Good. Well... I just wanted to bring up something off the back of what you, one of your points, Michael, about 
tactical fouling and about being happy for a player to take a yellow card to stop an attack because we can just sub him off. Basketball had an issue with this. And it was kind of funny in a way, but it made a bit of a mockery of the sport for a while. The phenomenon was called Hacker Shack, and that's because Shaquille O'Neal, who was an incredibly dominant very large basketball player who made the game look very easy and was almost impossible to defend against. He was terrible at shooting free throws, which is what you're allowed to do when you're fouled as a basketball player. You get a free shot at the basket and some players convert 90, 95% of them and some of the players convert 50 or 40% of them. So um, it became a tactic of coaches to bring on a reserve player, a bench player, purely to foul Shaquille O'Neal because the idea was he had less chance of scoring points with free throws, like a free shot a goal, than he did in general play, receiving the ball near to the basket and just dunking over folk. So they would bring on a scrub, for want of a better Mm -hmm. word, just to pick up five fouls. I think you're allowed six until you have to come out of the game. And it it just and it, it didn't just happen for O'Neill either. It, it's happened more in recent times as well. It made, to my eyes anyway, it made a bit of a mockery of the sporting integrity of that game. And it was, to my eyes, terrible to watch. An extreme example, I guess, Michael, of what you're kind of suggesting uh, could be increasing in, in, in our sport football. In our sport, yeah. <laughs> I think... Um... That was so soon there, so my God. <laughs> but yeah, no, I completely agree. I mean, that's the issue with tactical fouling, that the, the compensation for the attacking of the team with the ball is just nowhere near what they've lost. You know, that's Spurs' game plan. That's what they're trying to achieve. They're trying to achieve those good chances breaking into space. And uh, if you just get a free kick in your own half, the opposition have 11 men behind the ball... Yeah, completely changes the the game, doesn't it? So which Premier League managers are enjoying this longer leash? Because that's the other thing. A lot of managers have asked for it, but you've got to walk the walk after you've asked for five subs. Which managers have actually used their five subs across both games so far? Yeah, I was surprised to see just three sides, again, just two games played, but only three sides who have used five subs in both of the games. And it's Manchester City, Manchester United and Brentford which I think is interesting for, for different reasons, which we can come on to. But for Manchester City particularly, I think it's quite interesting because looking at last season, again, in this piece that I did about substitutions, um, Pep Guardiola actually averaged the fewest substitutions made per game across the whole league last season. So average just 2.1 substitutions per game you know, across the whole campaign. So interesting to see that he's used five so far. But I think, as you say, I looked into it and you know, three of those substitutions against West Ham were after the 88th minute. So it's not necessary to change the game, as we'd expect, but maybe to, to just give players more minutes and, and young players more minutes, which I think we can come on to. I think that's an interesting point there. You can look at it two ways. You can look at it just in terms of the number of changes or you can kind of do what you briefly referred to, Ali, in terms of when they actually use them. I mean, Newcastle, for example, have used eight subs of their 10 on offer so far but the subs have only got an average of seven minutes uh, per appearance um, for Fulham it's actually even fewer it's six minutes per appearance so yeah there's um, it's interesting it's a good point you make that a lot of the subs are clearly coming very late on 
And I guess while the transfer window is still open, there's a, a chance that managers will use or rather not use subs in order to send a message to the board, Michael, that they, they need more signings. This squad isn't deep enough and here's the evidence. Yeah, maybe. I, people love this kind of... Uh... <laughs> Conspiracy theory is going a little bit too far with what I'm calling it, but it does. I mean, it is interesting. Leicester, who haven't made a single signing, have lost a couple of key players, might lose a couple more. Brendan Rodgers has only used four subs um, so far and, of course, has named an unchanged side. Um, so, yeah, maybe, maybe he's sending a message or maybe that is literally just all he's got to work with. Famously good at sending messages either in an envelope <laughs> or with his substitutes. I just want to shout out uh, a manager in the EFL in League One, Peterborough United's manager Grant McCann, uh, who on opening day was they were two 0 down to Cheltenham, made a triple sub at half time, uh, which I guess is nothing new. That's always been an option for managers in the modern game, but. Previously, you weren't then able to make any more. Uh, he did make more. They won 3-2. That worked. And then last weekend, they were losing to Plymouth Argyle. And Grant McCann made what might be the first ever quad sub at halftime. Four on. 40% of his outfield players came off. He made the change. Didn't work. Still lost the game. Uh, it's a really interesting discussion. I think uh, it's probably one we could come back to later on in the season with a, with a larger sample for Mark to work with. Uh, I want to... I want to talk more about things like the flow of the game and whether it has an impact. You know, do we see, do we see, well, let me ask you now, Michael, do, do you think we see with more substitutes, fresh attacking players bringing fresh impetus to the game? Or you sometimes see the argument, well, actually subs need a bit of time to get going. So sometimes it can take away some momentum from the game. I can see both arguments. Um, Shame. I think at, at times, yeah, <laughs> at times, yeah, you can just see a side is loading up on attacking players. I must say sometimes when you get so many substitutions in such a short period of time, I do, maybe it's just... Confirmation bias. Yeah, maybe it's confirmation bias, but it just feels like sometimes the game's just become a bit scrappy, almost mm. like international friendlies do when there's loads of subs. I can't work out whether that is right or not, but... Um, I have, to wait. I have to think about that more, to be honest. It's a good question. And as someone who's interested in youth development, you know, that argument that more young players may get more minutes here is something that, I guess, initially I sort of think, oh, yeah, that would be good. And the more I think about it, the more cynically I think that probably won't happen to a hugely important degree. But I think we'll, we'll need to wait a, a few more months until we actually could could work that out with some data. Uh, so let's move on to another change, which we were told about just before the start of the season. That was to do with refereeing. Always a hot topic, isn't it? Refereeing. Yeah, um, referees have a higher threshold this season for physical contact. So uh, in theory, anyway, fewer fouls, fewer free kicks being given for little tugs or a little bump here and there. Um, Michael, have we seen this? The first two weeks of the season. Can you see it? I must admit, I'm a little bit perplexed by all this because people were saying exactly the same thing last season. They were saying, talking about this higher threshold for fouls. And I didn't really notice it then, I must be honest. And I haven't massively noticed it this time around either. Um, so, I, yeah, I don't know about all this. Mark? I mean, I wonder how much it will change throughout the season as well. I'm trying to think of a, an analogy, almost like a, a teacher telling a 
a pupil to to do something and they do it for like a few minutes just to show that they've listened and then things sort of taper off a little bit I don't know whether it's almost what the referees are doing is they're told and then come the end of the season it'll all just be back to normal and they'll be them strict their strict selves but I think I've seen it a few times. I think in the the Liverpool Crystal Palace game. There's a few times where I thought, "There's yeah, that that looks to to my eyes to be a a foul that that should be blown up for." But it did create a bit of a more yeah more of a flow to the game. But then I think it naturally led to it being a bit more like for like. So when there was one foul that was let go, then when the next foul was within the same sequence of play was a foul. You think, well, you let the other one go, so now you got to let this one go, and then players are becoming more irate, and then it might build up to kind of a potentially bigger foul, if that makes sense, rather than the, a lot of little <laughs> cynical ones. So I don't know. I'll be interested to see how the pattern works out across the season. Would it be wrong to say that's that that's exactly what we want to yeah, see? Yeah, I think so. You know, but, yeah, I, I, I think I've seen this across, across the Premier League, uh, some of the games I've watched this season. That first Premier League game was at Arsenal Palace. I, th- I thought it, it felt like we were seeing it. But again, there's there's every chance this is confirmation bias because it, it's been talked about, so you just notice it more. Um, I also just think it's quite a funny one because in general, I think, yes, that's great. I think we'd all love to see a game flow a bit more and, and fewer fouls being given. When it happens against your team, it is very difficult to swallow. Uh, there's been a few, certainly in the Championship, where attacking players have gone up for aerial duels with centre-backs and just, just smashed into them. And the ref's been like, well higher threshold this year so tough luck centre back that guy's got no intention of playing the ball but I'm just going to let this play for the sake of it um, which I think probably isn't a good thing overall but means more goals um, anything in the numbers early doors Mark fewer fouls this season I don't think again there's too much in the way of sample size to, to go from but there's so far there's been 9.9 fouls per team per game um, which compared to last season, it was across the whole season, 10.1 fouls per team per game. So really not really anything in it, to be perfectly honest. So uh, again, it'd be interesting to see how that plays out across the season. But again, it might be confirmation bias from my perspective where I'm seeing a few occasions where um, the, the game's been let go. But in the numbers, not, nothing too much to report home about. Mm. But the, the, there's also like a bit of a contradiction about this thing because no one wants fouls in games, do they? I mean, if you say, do you want... Do you want a game with loads of fouls or not many fouls? Most people say they don't want many fouls, they want the game to flow. But if the ref, if there is a higher threshold and that sets the standard, then eventually you end up with a game where there is like loads of physical contact mm. and it, it just becomes a bit of a kind of, you know, a bit scrappy and a bit too physical. So uh, the fouls per game thing can be two things. It can be the referees being stricter so there's more fouls or the players being dirtier. So there's more fouls. Do you see what I mean? It's almost like a bit of a contradiction in a way. I wonder how much PG Moll thought this through. We'll yeah. see. One of the equally upsetting things about the modern game on this sort of note is is time-wasting game management, call it what you will, um, particularly from teams who are uh, trying to see the game out either for a win or a draw. It's It's incredibly annoying. It's another thing, a bit like tactical fouling, that feels sort of... It like it's not really what we're all there to to enjoy. Does it feel like any progress has been made in in reducing this in any way, Michael? I know people are kind of very worried about the kind of ball in play time now. Um, I did see some stats the other day where the average in the Premier League is about fifty eight minutes or something like that. Um, 
I don't think it's a massive issue. It, overall, I must say, I think this basically has always been the case. I think what can be the issue, which you kind of allude to, is the ball and playtime can be massively different from one game to the next uh, because of time wasting. So yeah, hopefully they do clamp down on it a bit. I was kind of had an idea the other day that maybe every goalkeeper should just start the game on a booking because, <laughs> I mean, goalkeepers get booked for time wasting, but it never actually, I mean, have you ever seen a goalkeeper dismissed for two bookable offences? I don't think I have. And I can't imagine many goalkeepers miss a game three suspension because of five bookings. So actually booking, it kind of hurries them up after that. But they always get booked in like the 82nd minute or something, mm. don't they? You need to do it in the 20th minute and then you, you might scare them into action. Or just, yeah, just give them a booking from the start. Yeah, that happened with Vincent Goita on Monday, didn't it? He got a yellow card in yeah, like the 90th minute because he was taking ages um, and just carried on. And you think, well, he's not going to get the, the other yellow card. So he's fine to just have that one as a free hit. But again, it might be confirmation bias. But I think Rhys James got a yellow card against Everton in the first game for um, for time wasting. So those are two examples that I can think of. So I don't know whether there has been a little bit more clamping down in terms of giving yellow cards. Um, or, or maybe it's just those are the two examples I can think of in my head. And then this sort of thing leads me to to have thoughts that I'd rather not have. Like if my team is trying to see a game out and the goalie doesn't get booked for time wasting, hmm. it, that's you know he hasn't done his job properly. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's uh, it's all a bit ridiculous. I, I what I'd like to see happen semi seriously or at least trialed, maybe in one of the lesser lesser leagues, so to speak, would be that um, as a punishment for time wasting. Uh, that a, and this is not my original idea, I, but I've, I've co-signed it, would be to give a corner to the opposition instead of a yellow card for the goalkeeper. Much more damaging, as you've said, much more likely to, to hurt the team. Um, and I, I just think in the Premier League, we've got a referee, we've got all the other officials, we've got a ton of people sitting in Stockley Park, we've got loads of clever robots and AI now, don't we? We've got it all. I don't see how it would be that difficult to start a timer when a goalkeeper either catches the ball and has a goal kick to take out of his hands or from a certain moment a couple of seconds after the ball has gone out of play for a goal kick and say you know what if you take more than 10 seconds there is meant to be a rule out the hands anyway which is clearly doesn't doesn't get enforced at all but let's say from a goal kick if you take more than 10 seconds before you run up and kick the ball corner I like it they could just buzz the ref's watch like they do for goal line tech. I, I mean, I can't see any flaws in this plan. I know that Michael, if if he had an issue with that, he'd be coming straight with both <laughs> barrels. So the fact that he's sitting there nodding, that gives me great confidence. Yeah, I, I don't hate it. And I think there is almost a logical argument that if you've got a goal kick and you don't take it in time, it's almost like a foul goal kick. And so it's a corner. The same way, if you if you don't throw throw a ball in, probably it's a foul throw. It goes the other way. So I think there is kind of some logic there. Yeah. Finish with a couple of quick hits. Manchester United uh, trying to cut through some of the noise, Michael. I just wanted to ask you a pretty simple tactical question based on their defeats to Brighton and Brentford. What have been their biggest issues? on the pitch so far uh, and can we see things getting better with time which is what often happens with a new manager coming in or is there something inherently broken here I think the worrying thing is they've been quite different defeats in a way I think really Brighton were very successful outnumbering them 
in terms of the midfield and playing through them very easily. And Brentford were very successful at pressing high up the pitch. So they've been, I'm not sure there's necessarily a blueprint between those two games. I think they've been just very different. So I think they've got a, a few issues. I must say it's not necessarily a tactical thing, but I think the situation with Ronaldo is kind of the worst of both worlds. I think ideally Ten Hag would have moved him on. If not, he, you know, have him stay at the club and knuckle down and train hard. But it seems like they've ended up with an unhappy player who's still at the club. And I think that's that's going to undermine Ten Hag's authority. But yeah, at the moment, it's looking a bit of a mess. Nothing went right against Brentford. I mean, to be 4-0 down at half-time to Brentford, with all due respect, I mean, that's one of the most shocking results I can remember in the Premier League. You spat out the word Brentford there, like <laughs> Sir Alex Ferguson saying Japan. Back yeah, in the days. <laughs> yeah, that is that's a good shot. I mean, in a way, I thought Brentford and Brighton were they're almost the the two type of games you don't want first up because if you just lose to a big club, it's kind of like well, those things can happen. But Bright, Brighton and Brentford, whilst both very good sides, still have the reputation as being like well, a few years ago they were in the you know the fourth tier or whatever. So for Manchester United to lose to both of them. It does feel quite uh, quite damning. Was that maybe the difference last season with with Arsenal? I know that they did lose to Brentford in the first game, but it was Manchester City and Chelsea. I think were the other two games, so it was sort of like, well, at least they've got those games maybe out of the way, and they can go up from there. But yeah, it was a strange one. I think the playing out from the back is is kind of key in all this as well because it's such a a closed moment where you can obviously set up from a an attacking perspective and from the the opponents, you can really see what United are looking to do in a moment in time rather than it being obviously fluid within the game. So the, the ease in which Brentford just managed to to stop United even playing out from the back and the, the execution of it, I think, was the key thing because the cards are on the table a little bit now. That we know how Eric Ten Hag wants United to build out from the back. That's Those cards are on the table. And it doesn't seem like they've got the, the skill or the confidence, whatever it might be, to actually go and execute it. So it... For anyone playing United in the next few weeks, it hopefully would be, or you'd imagine it would be, just rinse and repeat in terms of trying to stop them from playing out the back because they looked so, so poor that you just, you've got a blueprint now to, to try and attack them or at least stop them building out. They started against Brighton without a recognised striker. They started against Brentford with Cristiano Ronaldo up front. Uh, two clubs towards the top of the Premier League who did go out and, and get nines this summer uh, Darwin Nunez and Erling Haaland Michael what have you made of these two additions to the Premier League and their start to life well the Haaland thing is very interesting isn't it because uh, I mean he barely touched the ball at the weekend I think his first involvement was getting the assist for Gundogan in the first game he played I think pretty well obviously he scored both goals his runs into the channel prompted both goals but again he wasn't overwhelmingly involved um I think he's he's clearly a different option for City and he is going to improve the way that they play. I'm interested to see what happens in big games because I think it's those games where Guardiola has often tried to play or wanted to play without a proper centre-forward. And I don't know whether Haaland can play a different role. I don't know whether he can be used out wide. I would say probably not. I don't know whether he's at the status where he's almost undroppable for those big games. So I think that would be interesting. Um, and Liverpool, I mean... Probably not much more needs to be said about uh, Darwin Nunes. But, I mean, after a decent impact as a sub in the first game, I mean, the way he got... What would what, what you even call it? Bullied by Anderson? Rattled. or Rattled, Rattled by Anderson? Yeah. I mean, the amazing thing is, it's not, it's not completely uncommon for this kind of thing to happen for a foreign player coming to English football. But I just think 
he's Uruguayan. Mm. I mean, of all the kind of major footballing nationalities, which I think Uruguay absolutely is one, considering their history and how good they've been over the last 10 years. You know, you think of Suarez, you think of Diego Godin, you think of Arevalo Rios. Like, it's a it's a football culture that's about kind of being bitty and niggly and difficult to play against. Streetwise. Yeah. And, and how he got so constantly rattled by Anderson. I mean, it was a masterclass of centre-back play from a player who I don't really think of as being along those lines. I think of him as quite, you know, quite silky, quite, you know, intelligent with the way that he defends and very good with the ball at his feet. But yeah, it was almost like he was playing against Claudio Gentile or something. It was remarkable. I feel like Anderson's been a bit of a standout player of the first two weeks of the Premier League season because both of Palace's games have been televised. And against Arsenal, a lot of people were noting the, the quality of his long-range passing in particular. Uh, and against Liverpool, had a, another big impact on the game in, for an entirely different set of skills. Uh, lastly, Michael, the top goal-scoring human in the Premier League has three goals. Own goals has seven through two weeks. That's a bit of fun. Yeah, we've seen a remarkable number of own goals. We've also seen some other just weird trajectories I think at least three goals off the top of my head have gone off uh, gone in via deflections there's been two goals I can think of where a defender has played the ball against a striker's boot and it's just flown into the goal um, there's been some other obviously comedy goals the the second goal Brentford scored against Manchester United just really a, a, a daft error there's been some calamitous moments it's been it's been great to see Brilliant. Two weeks of Premier League football, plenty of topics to discuss on the Tactics Pod this week. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Uh, always feel free to let us know what you enjoyed, what you didn't enjoy, uh, anything you'd like to, to take on from what we've discussed, extrapolate further with your own thoughts. Um, do get in touch. You can comment uh, on the Athletic site, on the podcast section, on this podcast episode specifically. Of course, you can get in touch with us on Twitter as well. Make sure you're reading everything on site at the moment, particularly uh, Michael's piece from this morning. If you're not a subscriber, well, theathletic.co.uk forward slash tactics is the place to go to become one. Michael's written a piece about the Bundesliga and about Bayern Munich. I'm not going to give anything else away other than to read one comment which says, Michael, you have way too much time on your hands, it seems. This is silly. I always think that's a pretty good reflection of, of some of Cox's best work. So head to The Athletic to read that today. Big thank you to Mark and to Michael for joining me. And I reckon we'll probably go again next week, won't we? On The Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. 
Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. 